Okay, so we should be good. Recording the podcast now, and we are picking up right where we left off two weeks ago at 1 Samuel 25, verse 1. People who are listening to podcasts don't know any better about what happened in the last 10 minutes when I forgot to hit podcast, but that's okay. They don't need to. They know now what they missed something, and oh well. So, for 25, verse 1. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him. So, of course they did. This is the last judge of Israel, the anointer of kings. And they buried him at his home in Ramah. I don't know if Ramah is on this map, but it's in that same general area, okay? Then David moved down into the desert of Paran, also just to the um, south of this area. It's just getting into the more of the wilderness area that's there. Okay. Now, a certain man in Maon. So, Maon, I think, is on here. Okay. So, let me get my handy-dandy green pointer. So... Yeah, I got a new toy. Patty's going to get sick of this thing. I probably use it on my television set at home. Okay. There's Mayon right down there, right? So he's, he's just, that, that's what's happening. So, a certain man in Mayon who had property there at Carmel, you can see it up there. Um, I should note there's a much more familiar Carmel which is up on the coastline. That's where Haifa is. That's where the story of Elijah is. So there's two. There's at least two of them. Um, but, but this one is in that same hilly region. Now, a man, a certain man of Maon who had property there at Carmel was very wealthy. How was wealth defined? He had a thousand goats, three thousand sheep. This guy, this guy's Bill Gates. He had a thousand goats and three thousand sheep which he was shearing in Carmel. That is a lot of shearing to be done. You know he's not doing it by himself, right? But that's a lot of shearing. So are these numbers elevated? Like oh, sure. I mean, ask so the numbers out. Sure. Nobody's, he's got, uh, I mean, in Hebrew, thousand is about the biggest number they need for anything, right? So this is just telling you that he is, he's not just a little wealthy. He's got a lot of wealth. This is a rich guy. And he's busy up there in Carmel, up with the herds, up in the hills where the herds would, you know, go to feed and all that kind of thing. And they're doing that shearing that they have to do to get the coats and stuff off. You've probably seen it done. These days, of course, they have electric clippers. Back then, they would have only had... They would have had knives. I don't know that they had anything else than that. But they're, they're sharing them. His name was Nabal. And his wife's name was Abigail. Oh, she was an intelligent and beautiful woman. But her husband was surly and mean in his dealings. He was a Calebite, not an Israelite. Now, while David was in the wilderness, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. So he sent ten young men out of his, right, he's got a force of what now? About like 600, we were told last, I think. And he said to them, go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. 
and say to him, long life to you, good health to you and your household, and good health to all that's yours, dear Nabal. Very solicitous greeting, very kind, going to meet up in the hills, you know, David just sending his ten emissaries there. And they're to say, then they're to say to Nabal, now I hear that it is sheep shearing time. Well, when your shepherds were with us, we did not mistreat them. And the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. Right? Um, a band of people like David has assembled around himself. Remember who in the eyes of the Israelites are people of disrepute or owning money, owing money or that. They would probably be seen by upright, right folks as being, you know, like desperados. So, tell Nabal this, verse 8, Ask your own servants and they will tell you. Therefore be favorable toward my men, since we come at a festive time. Please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. Now what he means is that, of course, he's got this force of hundreds of men out there um, in this area, and they have to be supported somehow. They have to find food. They have to find drink. Um, and where does it come from? They would, you know, have to just kind of kind of live off the land, as they say, but that only goes so far. There's a lot of land here you're not going to live off very long because it's just it's so sparse. And so, but it's a really... Look, now, now what is David implying in the paragraph? We're hungry. We're hungry. I scratched your back. My, I have all these men. We could have taken what we wanted, but we didn't. We didn't harm anybody. We didn't harm your sheep. All that kind of thing. So now I'm just coming to you, hands out, asking for help. That's what he's basically doing, is asking for help. There is a very high premium put on hospitality in this world. Because it's a very, very harsh world. And all the kind of things that we have in our lives to make them easier and simpler, they don't have. And so there are big norms, big social norms uh, about what you do when somebody shows up. Somebody shows up at your house and they want to sleep, you know, or they need something to eat. And all that you need to remember when you come to the numerous parables and stories, particularly in the New Testament about that, but really throughout the Bible. Well. Verse 9, when David's men arrived, they gave Nabal this message in David's name. And then they waited. Nabal answered David's servants. Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. And going off with David. Why should I take my bread and my water and the meat I have slaughtered for my shearers and give it to men coming from who knows where? So is Nabal inclined to help David? No. no. How many fighting men does David have? 
600, that's what we were told, 600, 600 fighting men. Okay. Yes. Yes. Who is this? Who is this David? Who is the son of Jesse? So is he figuring that Nabal already knows Jesse? No, I imagine when the emissaries went there, we hear from David, son of Jesse. Right? That's what they would have said. Uh, you know, um, it's very common that when a person needs a second name, okay, they would do something like son of Jesse. So, which is in Hebrew, bar, B-A-R. So like the man who is um, Pontius Pilate offers to the crowd alongside Jesus, we call him Barabbas. He's, his name is actually Bar Abbas. He is actually son of Abbas. So you find that here and there. Um, uh, sometimes in, in, in modern world it's Ben, B-E-N, okay, serves the same function. But in this case, it would be very common to make clear which David you're talking about by using his father's name. Okay? Sort of like a last name, really. Anything else? Well, David's men turned around and they went back. And when they arrived, they reported every word. And David said to his men, Each of you, strap on your sword. So they did, and David strapped his on as well. About 400 men up, went up with David while 200 stayed with the supplies. All right. Make sure we understand what's going on. So Nabal says no. He doesn't say, just say no. He says, I'm watching myself, Andy. He says, he says heck no. <laughs> he says, heck no. No, 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 no. Who is this guy? Where does he come from? So they go back and they tell David, and, and David's temper, he loses his temper, right? Strap on your swords. He puts his sword on. And now he's going to take 400 of these fierce, battle-hardened, wilderness-living fighting men to go confront Nabal and his sheep shearers. And he's going to leave 200 of the fighting men behind to guard David, the supplies that David does have. Because if you don't have this, uh, if he loses supplies, he's really sunk. So he's got, so he, he got to leave a good force there to look after what he's already got while he goes, hoping to come back with more. But David's mad. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So I was going to get to that. Yeah. Okay. So, 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 uh, Brother Harbison over here, my good, my good Baptist buddy, right? Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So he notes that the Nabal in Hebrew is actually means fool. So that's part of the story, right? So why is he a fool? What makes him a fool? Because he obviously knows David's got hundreds of fighting men and he's, he's just saying no in a nice way. He basically insults them. He doesn't say, oh, I've got nothing, I can't. You know, the fridge is empty and the stores are closed. I got nothing for you. He doesn't do that, he insults them. And who is this David? Where's he from? Why should I help them? Why should I give them anything? 
and he is hence a fool and hence named Nabal. Well, now David has lost his temper and he is riding, not, not actually riding out because they don't think they have, they don't have horses, but he is heading out 400 fighting men with him and they are not happy. Now, one of the servants told Abigail, Nabal's wife, David sent messengers from the wilderness to give our master his greetings, but our master hurled insults at them. Yet these men were very good to us. They didn't mistreat us, and the whole time we were out on the fields near them, nothing was missing. They didn't take anything, nothing bad happened. You could even extend it to, you know, when they were out there with us, it was all good. Right? Nobody else came in and took anything. They were almost like guardians out there. Night and day they were a wall around us the whole time we were herding our sheep near them. And that's really good. This is a hard world. Sheep shearers would want protection. They say to Abigail, now think it over and see what you can do because disaster is hanging over our master and his whole household. He is such a wicked man that no one can talk to him. He's a fool. He's arrogant, he's wicked, he's, he's Nabal, and he's your husband. Right? Okay, so Abigail acted quickly. This is what I love about Abigail. She is a woman of action. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, five seahs of roasted grain, a hundred cakes of raisins, and two hundred cakes of pressed figs formed into little Newtons. <laughs> oh, it does say, oh wait, it doesn't say that. And loaded them on, I have too much fun with you guys, and loaded them on donkeys. Then she told her servants, go on ahead, I'll follow you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. So Abigail is now working behind her husband's back, right? because this is a bad situation. And so she rounds up all kinds of food and drink and, and loading it on animals and, and she is gonna head out. Verse 20, as she came riding her donkey into a mountain ravine, there were David and his men descending toward her. And she met them. David, slayer of thousands, slayer of Goliath, this fighting force. Can you imagine what rumors and stories were flying around the neighborhood about David and his men being chased by the king? There were David and his men descending toward her and she met them. David had just said, it's been useless. All my watching over this fellow's property in the wilderness so that nothing of his was missing. So David even knew what he was doing. He figured, okay, I will, this guy's got these giant herds. He will be grateful that we put this wall up as the sheep shearers themselves said between them and the world so that he could do their work and be safe and they wouldn't lose any livestock. 
But instead, he has, end of verse 21, he has paid me back evil for good. May God deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave alive one male of all who belong to him. David's temper is up. His fury is up. His fire is up, up, up. He's been insulted. He doesn't understand it. And he's going to take revenge. His blood, what, what do we call it? His bloodlust is up. Right? What does he want from Nabal now? He doesn't even just say, well, we're just going to take, go in and take what we want. What he says is no, no male is going to be left alive over there. Well, verse 23. Thoughts or questions? You want to know what happens. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed down before David with her face to the ground. This is obeisance. O-B-E-I-S-A-N-C-E. Obeisance. It is demonstrating that he is the master and she is honoring him. And she bowed down before David with her face to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, Pardon your servant, my Lord, and let me speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. Please pay no attention, my Lord, to that wicked man Nabal. He is just like his name. His name means fool. And folly goes with him. And as for me, your servant, I did not see the men my Lord sent. And now, my Lord, as surely as the Yahweh your God lives and as you live, since Yahweh has kept you from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, may your enemies and all who are intent on harming my Lord be like Nabal. And let this gift which your servant has brought to my Lord, be given to the men who follow you. So this is, this is Reuben's painting of the encounter. And of course, being Reuben's, everybody looks at least a little bit chunky. Um, and, you know, he's, a concern, he's not concerned with what they actually wore. So you can, I think that kind of armor, would they have that kind of armor out there, these guys, this, wow, well, no. We, she's, she's, as, she's as white as a person could be. Well, she, no, she's an Israelite. But it's still, it's this, you know, she has been on the ground, you know, at David's feet, really just hoping and praying to head this off. I'm sorry. Okay, so painted about 1630 by Rubens. I like to sometimes go through and look for images and Look at look at some of the old masters just because. What? Yeah, that'll be David reaching down to you know to where she is. Okay, because, well, you'll see, you'll see what Rubens intends with the painting. But she's basically come herself come and she has thrown herself at David's feet, and she's pleading for mercy, and she's she's pleading that he that he will be satisfied merely taking all this food that she has brought him and not give in to his bloodlust, this desire for revenge. There are a lot of wise sayings about revenge, if you want to jot any of these down, Andy. So, um, 
One I remember from a show that I think was called Revenge, and it was, I guess, a quotation from Confucius or somebody, and it said, he who undertakes a journey of revenge should dig two graves, right? That's actually very wise. That is very wise. Revenge is just, um, revenge breeds revenge, so. She, she's just said, please take this gift, you know. Yahweh has, has kept you. I've met you here. And look what, look what she says. She says, in, in a little bit above, in verse 26, Yahweh has kept you from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands. Put the sword away. Just stop and think about what is in your mind that you're going to do to these fellow Israelites. Okay, though, though Nabal appears not to be, the sheep shares almost certainly are. <sighs> Abigail, what bravery, <laughs> right? So she, she's brave because she's going to go and she's gonna, willing to ride down the ravine and confront David. She's brave because she's willing to do all this behind her husband's back. She's smart because she realizes the meaning of her husband's actions. She is wise. One of, the, one of the four virtues of Aristotle is prudence, which is a word we've lost or we've turned it into people, calling people a prude or whatever, which is ridiculous. Having prudence is merely understanding the consequences that will follow from your actions. Thinking things through so that you understand what will come if you undertake A or B or C. That's what being prudent is. That's what being that's a lot of what, be, of, of what wisdom is. That's why old people will be called, we're called wise, because we can see the actions ahead, because we've screwed it up three times in our own path. We just live long enough to make the same mistake enough times to where we finally get it. That's my own opinion about what wisdom is in old people. I can say that being one now. So she goes on. She says, please forgive your servant's presumption. Yahweh your God will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my Lord. You know, she too. People know what's happening between Saul and David because even in this world, which didn't have social media and didn't have papers and the internet, and, you know, word travels. And it's, it's not a big place. Israel and there's not gobs of people. People, they find out, and this 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 business between Saul and David has been going on a long time. And she too seems to sense that David is going to come out on top in this. Yahweh, your God, will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my Lord, because you fight the Lord's battles. You fight Yahweh's battles. Hearkening all the way back to, this, to, to, to Goliath. Um, I mentioned briefly in my Sunday class that I was reading one of the tributes to, to Tim, Tim Keller, who passed away last week, the um, Presbyterian pastor and scholar. Um, very, very influential for, for many of us. Um, in many, many pastors and, and many teachers. And 
he was talking about Tim Keller's a sermon he heard Tim Keller give on the story of David and Goliath because there are three levels to see it which is simply what ha usually happens in too many sermons where it's about you know just you know the the, the, the weak can overcome the mighty. A better one is that, well, the weak only can overcome the mighty because the weak utterly trusts on God's hand, so it's actually God's victory there with David and Goliath. But an, he said an even better one, which I haven't, con you know, I, it, it, it's not something I'd focused on, but I should have, was that David, see, he's really fighting for the Israelites themselves. Remember they would go out every day and they would confront Goliath and he would come out and then they would all run off in fear. Nobody was brave enough. They, they needed a savior, a rescuer. And so David steps forward. Little David complete, looks completely and utterly unprepared. This, no armor, no spear, no sword, no nothing. And he is, in his confrontation with Goliath, the savior of Israel. And Tim Keller went on in his sermon to note that, of course, that's Jesus. Jesus is from the line of David. David is, a, is, is, is assigned to Jesus. Jesus will go to a cross wearing no armor, having no sword, no shield and will be the savior of Israel and hence the whole world. So these people know that David has been winning battles because God has been with him. And she goes on to say in the last part of that sentence, and no wrongdoing will be found in you as long as you live. Well, that's what she doesn't get right. <laughs> you know, that's, 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 that's hope, right? That's, that's, but that's not how we humans are. It's not how David is. He, he isn't immune from doing wrong by any means. By any means. Um, he will do terrible, terrible things. Terrible things. But all that still lies ahead. Right now, it's all, if you, if you were to graph it all right, it's all on this upward trajectory for David. Saul's running him, running, running him down, but Saul's not getting him. David's even spared Saul's life in the midst of all this. And she says, verse 29, Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my Lord will be bound securely in the bundle of the living. Nice phrase. My Lord, the life of my Lord will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by Yahweh your God. But the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. When Yahweh has fulfilled for my Lord every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him ruler over Israel, my Lord will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or having avenged himself. She is saving David. That's, that's what we must see. She, in this moment, is David's savior because David is about to go take revenge and kill a countless number of people 
basically because he was insulted. And his bloodlust is up, his desire for revenge is up, and she is his savior. If something happens to you and your heart is screaming out for revenge and you, your, your, your fire is up, bless your friends who keep you from that revenge. Right? Revenge is, what is this, how does the psalm go? You know, vengeance is, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And then later on, it is with Jesus, it's all about forgiveness. So revenge doesn't have a place in the Christian vocabulary. There is no occasion in which a Christian can embrace revenge. Yes. That's the way we are. And so what do we do about that? What do, how, do, how do we... She is protecting him from himself. May I have friends who would protect me from myself. May you have friends who would protect you from yourself. Because you're right. It is a very natural... Natural. See, isn't that a great word? Natural um, reaction to certain events. But that doesn't mean we should act on them. And how do we not act on them? Oftentimes it is because friends or family stop us, right? It doesn't mean, that doesn't mean your friends are going to rip all the desire for revenge out of your body. But what matters first is what you do, right? What matters first is what you do because in the Bible that's what love is. Love is what you do. That's why you can love your enemy. You might not be filled with violins and roses, you know, for your most despised enemy on the planet. But you can still act toward them in a loving way. You can do, you can treat them the way that you would want to be treated. This is, this is something we've seen even in wartime. That when, when we got it right, we treated POWs the way we would want our POWs to be treated. Um, so, yeah, so revenge is dangerous, it's all of these things, but we have to help each other not undertake that journey of re revenge which would require us to dig two graves. So Abigail becomes David's savior. She is his rescuer in this moment. Sure, because is, is it revenge? is no. Jesus seeking revenge? No. Jesus is not seeking revenge when he goes into the temple. That's a righteous anger because God's house has been turned into a place where the priestly community gets rich, screws the little guy, um, has lost all sense of what it really means to love God and love neighbor. So it's not revenge. It's just, it's a righteous anger pronouncing God's judgment on the failure of the priestly class to be good shepherds for God's people. That's what that's about. So, so there is a place for righteous anger. God, God gets angry. There are a lot of things that happen in this world that God darn well should get angry about. 
right? I see them flashed in front of my eyes all the time. Murders of um, the children, the ho I mean, just make a long list, the Holocaust is whatever, an endless list. You want, do I want to believe in a God who doesn't care about any of that? Who's indifferent to it? No. But revenge is something else. Revenge is don't get mad, get even. Right? And so you can see in the Bible the progression of this. Genesis 4. Lamech says, ah, I was struck by a man. I killed him. Just sort of unlimited vengeance. You know, you, you strike me, you kill my son, I burn down your whole village and kill everybody. You insult me, I kill everybody. Unlimited vengeance. Then you go to Moses, and what does it say about vengeance? <laughs> vengeance, retribution, I'll call it, in the law of Moses. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, a life for life, an arm for an arm, a leg for a leg, which is, which is progress. You take my arm, all I can do is take your leg. You insult me, all I can do is insult you back. Okay, that's, to me that's moral progress might seem barbaric to us today, but it's compared to the world of Conan the Barbarian, it's moral progress. Then you go further. You come to the psalm. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Which means vengeance is simply not on the table for us. The problem with it is, it still leaves revenge in the game, so to speak. Okay? But then you go further in Bible. And Peter comes to Jesus and says, look, when my brother has wronged me, how many times must I forgive him? Seven times? And then Jesus says 70 times seven, 490 times, which is pretty well, as far as I'm concerned, unlimited forgiveness. So that's where it ends. This stream that began with unlimited vengeance with Lamech ends up all the way forward to unlimited forgiveness. And what Abigail has done here, she has simply saved David from doing a terrible thing. I mean, it's not fun to be insulted. It's not, well, I know nobody's ever insulted you guys, any of you guys, because you're all once such wonderful people. But it does happen. It does happen. And, um, and David's reaction to the insult is all wrong. It's not worthy of David. It's not worthy of someone who is God's to say, well, it was a terrible insult. We're going to go kill. I'm going to make sure that not a single man is living by the morning. That's his reaction to this situation. And Abigail, that's just what I want you to see, is that Abigail becomes David's savior. And yes, Jesus is our Savior in the larger sense, but we all need rescuers in our lives for various things. Patty rescues me all of the time. Rescues me from myself. And yeah, amen, brother. So, so she, is, she is saving David from something that he would always regret because he couldn't take it back. If he goes in there, their swords are flying, and he kills, and he kills 70 men, as he's whatever the number is. He can't take that back. 
when it's done, it's done. That may be the way of the ancient world, and it kind of was, but it's not to be, it's not God's way, and it's not to be David's way, and it's not to be our way, and he has shown that by Abigail, who stops him. She knows what happens. She meets him in the ravine. She literally stops. She gets off her little donkey. She gets, isn't it interesting that I know it's just probably doesn't mean anything, maybe, that she's riding a donkey, right? Jesus rode a donkey into Jerusalem. She hops off the donkey and she falls to the ground in front of him and she literally stops him at the bottom of this ravine from committing this terrible act which he hopefully would always regret. Because look again at that, at that sentence. My, verse 31, My Lord, David, David, you will not have on your conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged yourself. So what happened in the future? The seed was sown. What would happen if Abigail hadn't been there? What do you think? Yeah, well, we're going to find out what, what has, has David, does David learn something from this? Do we learn something from this? What I, my takeaway from this is to embrace, embrace friends. Even in a society, we have laws that restrain our desire for revenge, right? Yes, yes we do. Those are, that, that's good. Our laws restrain us in how we react when bad, terrible things are done to us. And that's good. We need that, otherwise, because bloodlust and desire for revenge, it is basically inescapable. The question is what you do about it. Yes? Well, I can show you several examples where that didn't work. And that would be uh, after every war, we have tribunals who ex execute all the Right. So, uh, your Pat's point is that it, it, of course, we're imperfect, so it doesn't always work. We, we, we hang people we shouldn't hang. Um, we try to justify some of it fine. We can, have, we can have discussions about that. My only point is that the under, she has saved David from this terrible seeking of revenge. And even if, it, even if it's in this one instance, and David doesn't learn much from it. Even if it's in this one instance, it's still a good thing. This is a good act that she has done. It's a good and righteous thing that she has done. Even if there are many other unrighteous things done in the world, this is a good and righteous thing. So, David says to her, Praise be to Yahweh, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. He sees this as God's hand at work. Yes? Where a what? <laughs> Talked as long as this? Yeah. Yes. Go see Mary's visit to Elizabeth. Uh -huh. 
and Mary's Magnificat, yes. So there are. I don't know why you asked me that, Gary, but yes. <laughs> I could find more, perhaps. But, you know, okay, so let me go with what Gary, Gary asked me whether there's other instances of, of a woman having so much to say. Another piece of this story is that she is a woman in this extraordinarily patriarchal world from 3,000 years ago. And she has her, how would we put it today? She has her voice. She has her voice. And she uses that voice. And she is smart enough and brave enough to, to get on that donkey and go confront David and his fighting force of 400 guys. So, thank you. Thank you. You're welcome, ladies. Okay. So, David said, verse 32, David said to Abigail, Praise be to Yahweh, the God of Israel, has sent you to me today. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. David recognizes that she has saved him. God has saved him through her. But that's how God works, right? God isn't God of the magic wand. God works through us. She, God has worked through Abigail in order to save David from doing something terrible. Verse 34, Otherwise, as surely as Yahweh, the God of Israel, lives, who has kept me from harming you, if you had not come quickly to meet me, not one man belonged to Nabal, would have been left alive by daybreak. He acknowledges, this is what I was riding to do, baby. I'm going there, I was going to take my revenge on them, and they were all going to be dead before morning. But God sent you here, and you did it. She did have to have the bravery and the smarts and the rest of it to go behind Nabal's back and go out to confront David. Then David accepted from her hand what she had brought him. See, he's kind of reaching down in Reuben's painting and kind of picking her up. And he said, go home in peace. I have heard your words and granted your request. If he would have killed all the men, would he be responsible for taking care of all the people left, the women and children? Yeah, in a way. In a way, yeah. In a way, under the Leveret Law, yeah. The women would have been married off to their husbands, brothers, and stuff, but... Um, Yeah, I noticed she, she's got some girls there and she's got some rather, she's got some kind of buff guys with her there and stuff. I don't know. You know, Ruben's had, he doesn't, he's, he doesn't have any more idea what these people look like than you and I do. Right? See, this guy, he doesn't have any more, this, you know, a lot of times we look at these things and we wish we had like a photograph of the incident, but we don't. So they like to paint. And so they painted from their own minds, images of this very, very cool encounter. So he says to her, go home in peace. I have heard your words and granted your request. Well, 36, when Abigail went to Nabal, the fool, he was in the house holding a banquet like that of a king. He was in high spirits and very drunk. He is a winner, isn't he? So she told him nothing at all until daybreak. Then in the morning, when Nabal was sober, his wife told him all these things, and his heart failed him, and he became like a stone. 
About 10 days later, Yahweh struck Nabal and he died. So, okay. So what happens? He finds out that David has brought 400 men to basically kill him and all the men of his household. And he has a heart attack. His heart stops right there and he falls dead like a stone. And 10 days later, he dies. I will say it. I, I, I will say it. Not a big loss. Okay. <laughs> okay, well, now Nabal the fool is dead. Abigail is the mistress of the household now. But that's not a good thing. This is a world in which women needed, needed the protection that men could provide because this is the world of Conan. The barbarian. I joke about it all the time, but I only joke about it because it's real. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Praise be to Yahweh, who has upheld my cause against Nabal for treating me with contempt. So how does he interpret Nabal's death? Well, God's given to Nabal what David was going to give to all of them because of the insult. He's still making kind of too big a deal about the insult, in my opinion. He has kept his servant from doing wrong and has brought Nabal's wrongdoing down on his own head. Okay. Then David sent word to Abigail, asking her to become his wife. Or if we were going to be more specific. Well, just let me leave it there. I was going to say one of his wives, but I'm not sure exactly where we are in that sequence asking her to become his wife. So his servants went to Carmel, 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 and said to Abigail, David has sent us to you to take you to become his wife. She is, she does appear to be a catch, right? Yes, my love. Thank you, Patty. I'm losing control here. I never had control. That's what I have to get used to. Okay, so David has sent us to you to take you to become his wife. Under Israelite law, she could become the wife of Nabal's brother, if he has a brother. I'm betting that guy might be a loser too. I don't know. But David wants to take her as his wife. She's beautiful, right? She's intelligent. She's brave. She's courageous. She's his rescuer. So she bowed down with her face to the ground and said, I am your servant and I'm ready to serve you and wash the feet of my Lord's servants. She is ready to serve. And if you say to me, well, Scott, this is generally the role of women in this world. It's a very limited role. That's why you have to celebrate every woman you meet in the Bible who breaks out of that role, like Abigail, like Deborah, like Hannah, like Holden, and others. She bowed down with her face to the ground and said, I am your servant and I'm ready to serve you and wash the feet of my Lord's servants. And Abigail quickly got on a donkey and attended by her five female servants, went with David's messengers and became his wife became his wife. That's like Hollywood. 
I don't know. It could have been a really smart move on a lot of levels on his part. Um, you know, I don't, you know, it's easy to assume that the inheritance laws are such that everything that was hers are now automatically his. It might not work that way, but I, I, I don't know enough uh, about that. Later on in Rome, it didn't always work like that. Wives, there were some very, very wealthy women in Rome who acquired wealth through inheritance that was then theirs. Um, but I, I, I'm not sure. But whatever, I think the focus is on Abigail the person. Now, David had also married Ahinoam of Jezreel, and they both were his wives. Okay, so she is, he's invited her to be one of his two wives. Now you may say, wait, 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 what about Michael? Right? Who's Michael? Saul's daughter. Remember, she was the one who, 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 who got David out of town, yep. right? But Saul had given his daughter Michael to somebody else. He had given his daughter Michael, David's wife, to Paltiel, son of Laish, who was from Galim. So Michael, who loved, remember, she loved David. When David took off, and Saul is following and chasing and chasing and chasing and there's confrontations going. Saul, mad at David, gives his daughter, Michael, surely against her will, to Paltiel, some guy, Paltiel. Gives him to Paltiel. And, and so David has two wives, Ahinoam and Abigail. He will have more as time goes on because it's just kind of how that, how the, how things were then. So, okay. So we're not going to go on because chapter 26 is another discrete story. So, what kind of, any questions I could answer? Anything y'all would like to talk about today? Yes. David and Michael were married, and Saul gave Michael, David's wife, to somebody else to be his wife. Because he's king. He could do whatever he wanted. It's really, it's really not, it's not analogous to our world. Dan couldn't really get away <laughs> with that. Yes. Don't you try it. Okay. Yes? Oh, these are just, see, um, they're not tribes of Israel. When you read these stories, you, you need to see that there are a lot of other tribes in the same area as the Israelite tribes are living. And, and, and the growth of Israel is in part the continued consolidation of control by the Israelite tribes. The Amalekites, a big historical enemy. The Jeromelites, the Kenites, the Gerzites, the Philistines, the Jeshurites. These are just pagan tribes. Every tri everybody who's not Israelite is pagan, okay? So these are just pagan tribes among whom sometimes the Israelites are living. And so if you view, if you had a map, you could, you could, you could view the 
spreading control of the Israelites over these lands. Because they don't have political boundaries like we do, to where, you know, you conquer, you know, dis, you know dystopia or something, and then you own it, that, that isn't how it was. You, you had to really occupy the land and chase away the foreigners, and it's why Jerusalem, is, which is only just a few miles up the road from the place where Jerusalem, Bethlehem is a suburb of Jerusalem, basically. It's like five miles. Bethlehem is where Samuel went to see Jesse to anoint David. Five miles away is the city, but it's a Jebusite city. It's not an Israelite city. Um, so that's how it was. I remember hearing a lecture once about it where the person said, you know, you get to the end of the book of Joshua and they've conquered there in the Holy Land. And it says, ah, sort of like somebody saying, you know, they came and they conquered America and all they've really taken is New York, LA, and Chicago. The rest of it is all <laughs> still. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> hadn't thought about it quite that way before. Yeah. <clears throat> so, so yeah. So, anything else? Yes. Yes, but it's not magic. Here's, how, here's what it was. Nabal was up in the hills with the sheep shearers. She's back at home on the ranch. Okay? She's got all the stuff. They are very wealthy. That's what the thousands of livestock number is supposed to convey to us. So she has a lot of people. She has a lot of provisions. She has a lot of animals. And they, as a team, take a large amount of provisions and put it on whatever animals they needed and then she takes that contingent out and that is behind her at the ravine when she goes when she goes down and meets David which you which is further reinforced when it says that he marries her and she goes to live with David with her five five female servants she's got like five ladies in waiting or whatever they might come to be called in later human history right so I think every bit of the story is telling us that Nabal is wealthy, 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 but a fool, mean, surly, an idiot, and, and can I think of anything else to say about Nabal? No, that's enough. I feel sorry for him though as a kid. His mother named him Nabal, fool. Yeah, you know what? I bet you, Andy's commenting on having been given that name by his mother. I bet his mother did not give him that name. I bet his mother named himself and he picked that name up along the way. And in that weird pride that people can have, he embraced the name. Right? Look, you're calling me the fool? I got 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And you're calling me the fool? Yeah. So... All right, anything else? Sharon. When you brought up an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth, thanks to the 
concordance in the back of my Bible, unlike you who tell me where it is. Uh, Matthew 5 is where Jesus says that. Yes. It's sort of, uh, Abigail does what Jesus says. You don't take revenge. Right, but it, it, it's in the book of Exodus. It's part of the law of Moses. Right, and, and he says here, you've heard it saying, right. but he says, guess what? I'm telling you, love your neighbor. Right, see, Abigail is, she love says. Love your enemy, and she's there doing what. Yeah, she means she's the savior. Yes. Right, so she in her way is prefiguring Jesus. Yes. Right, yes. that no, you set the vengeance aside. You set the vengeance aside and she saves him from that bloodlust and she saves him from an act he would always regret. A terribly unrighteous act. Which is what Jesus is telling us to do. There you go. Exactly. Okay, very good. Wow. Y'all did a great job with this story. So, anything else? These are really good stories, Scott. They are really good stories. You can picture them being told over and over and, and Uncle, Uncle Jethro being command, commandeered at the campfire to tell the story of David and Abigail, right? That's how it happened. That's how these things come to be and then, and then they're written down and they're edited and they're compiled and somehow God has given us this great library of writings. But I personally, for me personally, the best the best, most well-told narrative is in Samuel. I don't think, I, there's some good parts of Genesis, but just as a whole, the book of Samuel is just so well-crafted and so well-told. Um, it's just, and coming from a time when people didn't really do that. They didn't really do that. So anyway, okay, very good. So when we come to next, next week, we will um, come to chapter 26, and David, he is going to have to spare Saul's life again. Oh, yes. So <laughs> would you pray with me, gracious Lord, as we leave here today? Help us to set aside desire for revenge when it flares in our hearts. Help us to have friends who will help us with this. Help us to be friends who will help our friends with this. Vengeance is not ours. It's, 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 it's not right. It's not even smart. But, but it's real. Transform us in such a way that even that desire will one day not be part of our hearts anymore. So that we will be transformed to know what your will is, what is good and pleasing and moral, what is right in this world. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Scott, I, I do have one question, though. Scott, Scott, I, 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 one, one.